It's opera trivia time. What do composers John Blow, Thomas Arne, Henry Purcell, and George Friedrich Handel all have in common? Stay tuned and find out in today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Join us for a spectacular event honoring three magnificent artists. Janet Baker, Cecilia Bartoli, and Lawrence Brownlee will be celebrated at the virtual presentation of the 2021 Opera News Awards on Sunday, April 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our three honorees will be saluted with appearances by Stephanie Blythe, Joyce DiDonato, Renee Fleming, Thomas Hampson, and Ramon Vargas, and with special musical performances by Aaron Morley and Luca Pizzaroni. Tickets start at $50 and are available for purchase at www.metgill.org awards or by phone at 212-769-7009. We can't wait to celebrate with you. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. If you guessed that composers John Blow, Thomas Arne, Henry Purcell, and George Friedrich Handel all had great success composing in England, you're partially correct. They also have music strongly associated with the British monarchy. Blow, Arne, and Purcell all wrote coronation anthems, and it was Arne who wrote Rule Britannia. I'm your host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, and today we present the first of a two-part series on opera in England. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, my co-host Stuart Holt explores these four composers in early British operatic history. This is the first of two episodes on opera in England. To start, it's important to note that the development of opera in England was a challenging road and, unlike the rest of Europe, did not develop as robustly. Perhaps you're asking why? Well, to begin with, in 1642, just after the First English Civil War, all London theatres were closed and plays were banned. It was thought that this time of war, or as they called it, the current times of humiliation, were incompatible with public stage plays, as they represented lascivious mirth and levity. Now, one Oliver Cromwell was one of the strongest voices, and in 1653 would be named Lord Protector of a United Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And in this role, he was in charge of the compliance with this ban and closure. But of course, if anything is represented in lascivious mirth and levity, we also have to know that the church was going to get involved. In England at the time, we have the Puritans, who sought to purify the Church of England of Roman Catholic practices, maintaining that the Church had not been fully reformed and should become more Protestant. And then on the other side, we have the Church of England that wanted to find its own pathway forward. 
Finally, unlike the rest of Europe, England didn't have the same sort of court opera that had evolved over time. So we have wars, religious challenges, and rather indifferent court support that make the arts somehow challenging to find a path forward. And yet they do. In 1656, William Davenant wanted to produce his play The Siege of Rhodes. The plot was based on the 1522 Siege of Rhodes when the island was besieged by the Ottoman fleet of Suleiman the Magnificent. However, given the ban on theatrical works, Davenant had to find a way around it, so he engaged five different composers to set the written text to music. However, in order to present a theatrical piece, Davenant had to obtain special permission from none other than Oliver Cromwell. He billed the production as recitative music, music that was still permissible under the law. This was enough for Cromwell, and he gave his blessing for the piece to proceed. The piece was presented at Davenant's home, Rutland House. While the music is lost, the drawings for the stage designs by John Webb still do exist. When the piece was published in 1656, it was under the interesting title, The Siege of Rhodes Made a Representation by the Art of Perspective in Scenes, and the story sung in recitative music at the back part of Rutland House in the upper end of Aldersgate Street, London. Thus, The Siege of Rhodes is thought to be the first English opera. With the arrival of Charles II and the Restoration period, we saw the reopening of theatres and a return of theatrical works. This is the period that gives us the Restoration comedy and the comedy of manners. It also saw the first female playwright in Afra Bain. Charles stipulated that the theatre licenses he granted required that female parts be played by their natural performers rather than by boys as was the practice before. Many musicologists think that perhaps this focus on the theatrical world and playwrights was another challenge for the evolution of opera in England. The use of music took away from the dramatic focus as the ancient Greeks intended. However, this is an interesting argument as we know that the Florentine Camerata believed that those early Greek plays were actually sung, thus creating the idea of opera. Yet, with all of this going on, opera does find a place in England, so let's take a look at the major players. First up is John Blow, born in 1649. He spent much of his time working in church music, having begun his musical career as a chorister, which allowed him to develop rather strong musical skills. He was an excellent student and earned a doctorate in music at age 29, making him Dr. John Blow, quite impressive for those days and, well, even today. In 1668, he was appointed organist of Westminster Abbey, where one of his pupils would be none other than Henry Purcell. Now, John Blow worked on his one opera, Venus and Adonis, between 1680 and 1687, during the reign of Charles II. Now, after that time, he would later become a private musician to James II in 1685. Now, the opera Venus and Adonis is in three acts with a prologue. It was written as a semi-opera or a mask. Now, this is similar to the Siege of Rhodes, but this time the music and the text were developed together. In fact, an early manuscript is subtitled A Mask for the Entertainment of the King. 
The libretto was first thought to be by Afra Bain due to the feminist nature of the text and because she and John Blow would work together on a later piece. However, in 2008, musicologists discovered that it was actually Anne Kingsmill Finch who was not only a poet, but the lady-in-waiting to Mary of Modena, who was wife of James II. The story is based on the classical myth of Venus and Adonis, which also inspired Shakespeare's poem of the same name, and Ovid in his poem Metamorphosis. The story follows Venus and her son Cupid, who accidentally pierces his mother with one of his arrows. The next person she sees is Adonis, whom she immediately falls in love with. As he is a hunter, she takes the form of Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, and encourages him to go hunting. When he learns of a wild boar causing trouble in the community, he goes to kill it, only to be gored by the animal in the end. Adonis returns and professes his love for Venus and then dies in her arms. John Blow added some comedic scenes for Cupid, including a spelling lesson with the other young Cupids and Cupid's opinion that no one at court is faithful. This is quite a critique, given that at the premiere, Cupid was played by a 10-year-old Lady Mary Tudor, the illegitimate daughter of Charles II and the actress Mary Maul Davies, who also played the role of Venus. Musically, the opera is much like French opera, specifically those of Rameau. We have a lot of popular dances and allusions to the court that it was written for. It is, however, one of the first pieces to be through-composed, with no clear arias or set pieces, and uses recitative to move forward the plot, and it's in English. We're going to listen to a pastiche of selections from a 2013 performance at Cannes with harpsichordist Bernard Coulier conducting. This will give us a real flavor of what this early English opera sounds like. Sie, 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 
Up next is Henry Purcell. He was a student of Dr. John Blow's, and his opera Dido and Aeneas was greatly influenced by Venus and Adonis. Purcell supposedly started composing rather young, with his first composition being an ode for the king's birthday at age nine. We know that his studies with John Blow included composition, but also keyboard, specifically the organ. Purcell would become organist at Westminster Abbey when Dr. Blow resigned. However, as Henry Purcell died so young, Dr. Blow actually returned to the organist position upon Purcell's death. Purcell devoted himself to the composition of multiple sacred works, but he also wrote music for several plays, as well as his one opera, Dido and Aeneas. The dates of composition and first performance of Dido are uncertain. It began as a play by Nahum Tate. He and Purcell adapted the play into a libretto in collaboration with Josiah's priest, who served as a dancing master and choreographer for a local theater. Now, Priest's wife kept a boarding school for girls, and it's thought that the first performance was actually held at the school in Chelsea. Some say this was the summer of 1689. Others say it was December of 1689. What we do know is that following these Chelsea performances, the opera was not staged again in Purcell's lifetime. In fact, it doesn't appear until 1895 when the first staged version occurs at the Royal College of Music to commemorate the bicentenary of Purcell's death. Like Venus and Adonis, the opera is through-composed and there is no spoken dialogue. Also, like Venus and Adonis, the piece was a representation of the court. It's thought that Aeneas is representing James II, who is led astray by the sorceress and the witches, who represent the Catholic Church, in abandoning his love Dido, who symbolized the British people. So what does this sound like? First, I've chosen the sorceress scene, as this role is actually one of the most flexible in the cast. It can be sung by a male voice or a female voice, and then within those voices, it can be sung by different voice types, mezzo, soprano, tenor, baritone, countertenor even. In this production, it is sung by a man. Now, Purcell writes only recitative for this character with very simple string accompaniment, so we don't get any sense of aria development. And the sorcerer's uh, evil utterances are answered by a chorus of ho, ho, ho. This is definitely not a complete sentence of text. It's just an utterance of ugliness coming from this group of witches that are responding to the sorcerer's call. In this scene, the sorcerer summons many of the witches to tempt Aeneas and have him sail away from his beloved Dido. Marc Mollion is the sorcerer in this production from 2014 in a production presented by Opera de Rouen Normandie. Thy night, 
We couldn't leave Dido without hearing the most famous, well-known aria, Dido's Lament, or When I Am Laid in Earth. Dido has been abandoned by Aeneas, and she says that death must come when he is gone. She then consumes poison and kills herself. This is a 2010 production from the Opera Comique in Paris, conducted by William Christie, and features Milena Ernman as Dido.
Probably the most well-known composer associated with opera in England at this time is George Friedrich Handel. However, he was born in 1685 in Germany. He spent most of his life there and Italy, but in 1710, Handel became Kapellmeister to German Prince George, the Elector of Hanover, who would later become King George I of Great Britain and Ireland. In that year, he would also travel to London with his opera Rinaldo, which would debut there in 1711. Now, by 1711, informed London audiences had become quite familiar with the nature of Italian opera through the numerous pastiches and adaptations that had been staged in the city. It was thought that the popularity of these pieces was the result of a deliberate strategy aimed at suppressing English opera. Now, opera, of course, people felt needed to come from Europe, and specifically Italy, and thus English was just not right. Tell present these Italian operas. In 1719, Handel would work with a group of wealthy patrons to create an opera company, the Royal Academy of Music. This company was housed at the King's Theatre on the Haymarket. Handel was appointed master of the orchestra, which meant that he was responsible for not only engaging soloists, but also adapting operas from abroad and providing possible libretti for his own use, which, of course, generally came from source material that originated in Italy. The Royal Academy produced 461 performances, 235 of which were works by Handel, including 13 operas. This was the theater that saw the premiere of Julius Caesar, Tamerlano, and Rodolinda, which will be back on the stage at the Met next season. In 1734, after 15 years, Handel's contract leading the Royal Academy expired. Now, many thought he would retire, but of course, he started another company. The Covent Garden Theatre was opened in 1732, and in 1734 began presenting its first operas. Handel's Alcina and his oratorio Alexander's Feast would debut at this theatre. Now, I thought we would explore several selections from Giulio Cesare in Egito, or Julius Caesar in Egypt. This is an opera seria in three acts. Now, a reminder that an opera seria is defined as a noble and serious style of Italian opera. The opera debuted at the Royal Academy of Music in 1724 and was a huge success in its first performances, so much so that Handel revived it frequently during subsequent seasons. We're going to begin with Caesar's aria Va Tacetto. This is a da capo aria, meaning there's an A section, a B section, which is new musical material, and then a return of the A section, but this time with additional ornaments or groupings of different notes, showing off the sort of virtuosic skill of the singer performing the aria. Now this aria is scored for strings and natural horn. The horn is closely aligned with the idea of the hunt. Listen to them at the beginning of the aria and then hear how Caesar echoes them in his vocal line. Now, the hunt is vitally important because of what's happening in the scene. In this aria, Caesar explains that he will be on guard against any violence that may come from Ptolemeo, the king of Egypt, and Cleopatra's brother. We're going to listen to two different versions of this aria. First up is Dame Sarah Connolly in a 2005 recording from the Glyndebourne Festival. Mm-hmm. 
Now let's listen to Dame Janet Baker in the same aria, but this time in English. This is a performance from a stage television production in 1985 by the English National Opera under Sir Charles McCarris. Now let's listen to another da capo aria, this time for Cleopatra, in her Vadoro Pupile, I Adore You Eyes. It's the opening of Act Two, and we are in Cleopatra's palace. She is in disguise and using her charms to seduce Caesar. We're going to listen to Montserrat Caballé as Cleopatra in a production from the Liceo in Barcelona from 1982.
Next up is Thomas Arne. You probably know him from this piece. This was the charter, the charter of the land, and Besides Rule Britannia, Arne was an extremely prolific composer with over 90 stage works in 40 years. Sadly, most are lost because of a disastrous fire that occurred at Covent Garden in 1808. Now, while wildly not known, his opera Attard Xerxes truly cemented his place in English opera. In fact, by the turn of the 19th century, almost every British music lover was familiar with this opera, almost to the point of hearing enough. In fact, in 1814, the author Jane Austen admitted that she was becoming very tired of hearing it. The anonymous text, though probably translated by Arne, is a translation of a libretto by Pietro Metastasio and focuses on the relationship between authority, desire, and violence. The plot revolves around Artaxerxes, prince of Persia, who finds himself thrust into a position of power after the murders of his father and his elder brother. It involves a killer named General Artabans, who has a son named Arbace, who's also involved in a clandestine affair with Artaxerxes' sister Mandan. So we've got all kinds of things happening that make for a rich opera plot. Musically, Artaxerxes is surprisingly simple. Arne uses a small chamber orchestra with instruments doubled to create additional volume. The recitatives are accompanied by a simple continuo of harpsichord and cello. But Arne really honed into the Baroque style that combined moments of simplicity with moments of vocal pyrotechnics. He also writes music that vividly reflects the mood of the characters. So in order to get a sense of this, I thought we might explore something that is a moment of simplicity with a moment of vocal pyrotechnics. First up, Arbace's aria, All Too Lovely. In the original score, the role of Arbace was sung by a soprano castrato. However, this has changed as we no longer have castratos, and much like the sorcerer-sorceress in Dido and Aeneas, has been sung by a myriad of different voices. It's been sung by sopranos, and sometimes it's even transposed for tenors, and mezzos have sung the role. In the aria, Arbace is now condemned to death, and he expresses his virtue and innocence. In the end, his friend Artaxerxes doubts his friend's guilt and releases Arbace from prison, allowing him to escape through a secret passage. The orchestration of this aria is extremely simple and delicate. It features muted violins and pizzicato in the bass line. The aria is about five minutes, but I really just wanted to give you a taste of this simplicity in a two-minute clip that comes from a larger concert with the Mozartists, featuring mezzo-soprano Helen Sherman.
Now let's listen to the vocal showpiece that has remained a recital staple even though the opera has been lost. The Soldier Tired comes from Act 3 and is sung by Artaxerxes' sister Mandin. She arrives on the scene to announce that Arbace has slain the general of the king's army and single-handedly put down the rebellion. This is Joan Sutherland from her album The Art of Joan Sutherland.
Next is a composer and piece that really changed the operatic landscape in England. John Gay was born in 1685 and was a poet and dramatist. He wasn't a composer and he wasn't even a musician, but he somehow embraced the idea of the ballad opera. Now, the ballad opera was a satiric musical play that used some of the conventions of opera, but no recitative. In its place, it used spoken dialogue. The libretto, or lyrics, were set to existing music. This meant that it could include popular ballads, opera arias, church hymns, and folk tunes of the time. They also typically poked fun of Italian opera seria. Now, Gay's most famous work was The Beggar's Opera. It featured music arranged by a German-born composer, John Christoph Pupisch, who had worked alongside Handel, and in fact, in 1728, the Beggar's Opera would compete directly with Handel. The story satirized politics, poverty, and injustice, focusing on the theme of corruption at all levels of society. The music wasn't grand, but it was accessible, and the audience could hum along to all of the tunes. It was extremely successful with 62 consecutive performances. Now, while you might not be familiar with the Beggar's Opera, you might be more familiar with Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht's take on it, the Three Penny Opera. And even if you're not familiar with that, you're probably familiar with the song Mac the Knife, which comes directly from the Three Penny Opera and is sung by the character of McHeath. So I thought we would listen to a scene with McHeath in the Beggar's Opera. This is going to be Roger Daltrey, yes, the lead singer of The Who, who appeared as McKeith in a production for the BBC in 1983. In this scene in the final act, he's sitting in his condemned cell, and he breaks into Gay's most memorable, magnificently angry song, Raging at the Inequality of Justice, set to the tune of a beloved ballad that I think you will recognize. The text is, Since laws were made for every degree, to curb vice in others as well as me, I wonder we hadn't better company under Tyburn Tree. But gold from law can take out the sting, and if rich men like us were to swing, t'would thin the land such numbers to string upon Tyburn Tree. Since laws were made for every degree To curb in others as well as me I wonder we had better company Upon Tyburn Tree Since laws were made for every degree To curb in others as well as me I wonder we had better company upon Tyburn Tree. But gold from law can take out the sting, and if rich men like us were to swing, t'would thin up the land, such numbers to string upon Tyburn Tree. But gold from law can take out the sting, and if rich men if you guessed the tune was Greensleeves, you are correct. 
we come to our last composer, Michael Balfe, an Irish composer born in 1808. Balfe also had extensive training as a singer, singing a ton in Italy and even becoming a protege of Gioacchino Rossini. He also became a noted conductor, working exclusively in Italian opera at Her Majesty's Theatre, which of course was the former Haymarket that Handel helped build. Balfe had a 40-year career where he composed 29 operas and almost 250 songs. And it's actually pretty disappointing that with a catalog like this, he is almost completely forgotten. The Bohemian Girl was his most successful opera and really brings us to English opera in the Romantic era. Debuted in London in 1843 and ran for a hundred consecutive nights. It would even debut in New York only a year later. The opera saw widespread success across Europe and was translated into multiple languages. A French version was mounted in Rouen, conducted by a young 20-year-old Jules Massenet. It did have further life in film. A silent version was made in Britain in 1922, but the best known is undoubtedly the 1936 full-length Laurel and Hardy film, described in the opening credits as a comedy version of The Bohemian Girl. However, the characters played by Laurel and Hardy do not even appear in the stage version of the opera. However, the most well-known aria from the opera, I Dreamt I Dwelled in Marble Halls, does appear in the film. The opera features a score of lilting, memorable melodies that please the public of the day. The opera also created a real craze for gypsy songs, novels, and art. According to Kobe's complete book of opera, there are no subtleties in the libretto, but the action of the piece is vigorous and as remote from everyday life as one could well imagine. The chief characters are either noblemen or gypsies, noblemen who have the power of life and death over people, and gypsies who may rob and cheat, but are also as innocent and pure as the hero and heroines of the story. The most famous selection is the Act Two aria, I Dreamt I Dwelt in Marble Halls. It's been recorded multiple times by opera singers and even Enya, the New Age singer who was popular in the 1990s. In the aria, Arlin, our heroine, is a noble who was kidnapped as a child. Twelve years have elapsed and she can only vaguely remember her noble upbringing. This aria is a reminiscence of that time. We're going to listen to Jesse Norman in a 1996 London concert performance that was a fanfare for Queen Elizabeth.
while Handel and Purcell are still produced today, Gay, Arne, Blow, and Balfe are largely forgotten. Many writers and musicologists believe that it was a great tragedy that England didn't have a chance to develop a true English opera, but I would argue that all of these composers defined their personal stamp on opera outside of what we might know as the traditional European model, and maybe even giving us a glimpse of the way that we would view opera in the future. Opera in England would continue to grow and change again in the 20th century, but that's a topic for us to cover on our next episode. That was the Metropolitan Opera Guild's Director of School Programs and Community Engagement discussing the early stages of British operatic history. Be sure to join us next week for part two of our series on opera in England. I'm your host, Dr. Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.